This is an ABC podcast. For more than three decades, Hilton Coppy was a country GP in northern New South Wales. And that made him an intimate part of people's lives, witnessing births, deaths, joy and pain. But a few years ago, Hilton's own health suddenly went awry. He had this awful pain in his neck. Then his face went numb. He worried he'd had a stroke. When he was sent for an MRI scan, Hilton didn't feel scared, though. In fact, he felt more comfortable than he had in years. When his doctor looked at the results from these tests, he gave Hilton some startling advice, which led Hilton to think differently about his own life and that of his parents and grandparents. This is the story of the doctor who became a patient. It's also the story of a soccer fan who finally realised his dream to wear the green and gold and play for his country. Hilton's memoir is called One Curious Doctor. Hi, Hilton. Hi, Sarah. You grew up in Sydney, but where, where were you born? So I was born in South Africa, in Johannesburg, which was uh, like the staging post for my family in, uh, in their journey from Europe on their way to Australia. So both my grandparents came from Europe and got to South Africa to relative safety during the Second World War. And then we migrated to Australia in 1960 when I was about 18 months old. And where in Europe had your mum and dad's families come from? So my mother's family was from Lithuania and my father's family was from Germany. Uh, my mother's family lived a very traditional Eastern European Jewish life. I didn't really know my mother's parents very well because they stayed in South Africa when we moved to Australia. And then what about your dad's family? So, yeah, they lived a more, uh, I suppose, middle-class German-Jewish life, as was the case in Germany before the Second World War. My, I think my grandparents thought of themselves, particularly my grandfather, as German first and Jewish second, whereas in Eastern Europe, in Lithuania, my grandparents there would have thought of themselves as Jewish first who happened to live in Lithuania. So how did your mum and dad meet each other then if their, their families, though both Jewish, were, were quite different by the sounds of it? Yeah, really, really different. So mum lived in Bloemfontein, which was a smallish city town in South Africa, a uh, very working-class family with not much in the way of possessions. And my dad went to Bloemfontein for work. He was in business. And the story goes, I don't, I don't know how true it is, but the story goes that they were introduced by kind of like a matchmaker. Uh, she was aware that my dad was an eligible bachelor from the city coming to Bloemfontein, and my mum was... Uh, probably 19 or 20, and, uh, and my understanding is that's how they met. Do you know what they made of each other in, in the early days? I, I think Mum thought of Dad as this uh, quite charismatic uh, character. There's a photo of Dad around that time, and he does look a bit like James Dean, which is... <laughs> Say no more, then. Uh, yeah, then. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of not exactly how his personality ended, <laughs> but at that time, that's kind of how he looked. And I think for Dad, in, in Mum, he would have seen someone who was uh, stable and solid and reliable. And she, but she also had this very playful and joyous manner about her. So I, I imagine that's what the attraction was. So both of... of their families had found safety in escaping Europe to South Africa before the war. What made them decide, your mum and dad, to move again and, and come all the way to Australia? So in 1960 in South Africa, there was a, a, a massacre at Sharpsville where about 100 Africans were killed by the police. And it was one of the first uprisings that had occurred during that period. And I think particularly for my grandfather, my German grandfather, he w didn't want his family growing up in another right-wing, ultra-conservative, oppressive country. And uh, he was really the driving force to look for somewhere 
that perhaps offered a little bit more stability and a more just life. And so they looked at the states, uh, Brazil actually, and Australia. And in 1960, Australia was welcoming white migrants and uh, they got a visa and were accepted to Australia. And what about your mum's family? Were they tempted to come as well to Australia? So again, the story goes that my father's family tried to convince my mother's family to leave, but they they didn't. And they were, they hardly spoke English. They spoke Yiddish at home. They, I don't know that they could read or write. So for them to move again, I imagine was extremely difficult. There was also quite a strong Lithuanian Jewish community in South Africa and certainly in Bloemfontein. They had community around them. And I guess like for many migrants, certainly that was my family's experience in the North Shore of Sydney. Um, for my grandparents, the community becomes like the family when there is no family. So it was you as a little baby and your mum and dad and your dad's parents who make this journey from South Africa to Australia. What story did your dad tell you, Hilton, about arriving in Sydney? Yeah, so, and my brother was with me as well. He was three months old, which actually mirrored my father and his brother escaping from Germany at two years and three months. You know, it's like ridiculously the parallels. Uh, but yeah, Dad tells his story of when we arrived into Australia that they were at the speaking with the immigration officer and the immigration officer said to um, my father, oh, how long will you be staying in Australia? And Dad said, oh, we're moving here. And uh, apparently he, the immigration officer came round from behind his desk and shook my father's hand and said, welcome. You're very welcome here. That still is meaningful for you, Hilton. Yeah, so much, so much meaning to, to be made to feel welcome is, yeah, still runs very deep in me. And I don't know why, I don't understand why, but always telling that story touches something that I can't explain, this thing about feeling welcome and, and safe, I suppose. And I think about how it is for people now. I wonder how many immigration officers come round and shake the hands of people coming to Australia and say, you are welcome here. Australia is very happy to have you. We were so lucky at that time to have had that opportunity. What kind of life did your parents build for your family then in Sydney? So we lived on, in St Ives on the leafy North Shore, but it was really kind of almost like semi-rural in 1960 when we moved there. Uh, it was a dirt road. There was like a farm, little farm next door, market gardens everywhere. So it was a great place to grow up as a kid. We could explore. There was lots of bush. It was so safe, walk everywhere. So even when I was in like kindy, like five years old at school, I'd walk a mile, the good old mile, down Monavale Road to school. Unimaginable these days that a five or six-year-old kid would walk more than a kilometre to school. And, and it was great. It was, it was very white Anglo community. And uh, although we were not at all a religious Jewish family, I was aware that culturally I was somewhat different. We didn't celebrate Christmas, um, but thankfully my birthday is on the 24th of December. So when my <laughs> friend said, what did you get for Christmas? I could just say what I got for my birthday and not have to go into the whole, we don't celebrate Christmas thing, which just all felt so difficult for me. I'm not quite sure how my brother, whose birthday in March, uh, managed that situation. <laughs> So your mum's parents were back in South Africa. Did you ever get to visit them as a kid? Yeah, so we went back twice, once when I was about five years old and then again when I was about 10 years old. My my grandfather, um, I, rem I remember we used to walk past him and he would like pinch my cheek so hard <laughs> and it was kind of like an expression of love, but I also imagine it was like 
wow, you're real, you're here, you know. It was like trying proof that you're here. And my grandmother, just a beautiful little, I remember her as little woman, so much I can see where my mum got her love for family. She was just a, a beautiful person and they had uh, g gas in their kitchen and we had electricity at, at home in St Ives. So after we'd visited there, whenever I smelt gas cooking, it reminded me of my grandmother in their little kitchen in their tiny little apartment. Uh, in a building that was called, ironically, Hilton Mansions. You know, like, it's so <laughs> strange because it definitely wasn't a mansion. It and must have been great as a kid called Hilton to yeah, be visiting Hilton Mansions. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> what would she cook for you? I have memory of things like latkes and blintzes and sort of some of those Eastern European foods, sort of pretty simple foods, but uh, soul food, I guess. And in St Ives, Hilton, what was school like for you as, as a kid? How did you feel you fitted in? I think I always felt a bit like an outsider and I'm not really sure why and probably my impressions of being an outsider were uh, more intense than what the reality was. I don't know how the other kids saw me, but I kind of looked the same as everyone, but I felt different. My name was a little different and hard to pronounce. You know, people would often get my name pronounced incorrectly. Uh, so, yeah, I did feel different. I did feel a bit like an outsider. At primary school, it was okay. At high school, it, things got a little bit more difficult for me. Maybe that's adolescent angst, but I certainly was never really that happy at school. Like soccer was my saving place, my safe place. What do you remember about your first tryout for soccer back in primary school? <laughs> so that was really not a very pleasant experience in a way. So I was probably, I don't know, seven years old and uh, Dad took me along to the village green in St Ives and I was a very shy kid and the other kids seemed to know each other and they were all, you know, kicking the ball around and I felt really apprehensive and unsure. So I kind of stood on the side and watched, which is like so much my personality in a way, especially growing up. And, you know, I might have got in and kicked the ball a couple of times. And then when we were driving home, my dad said to me, I was so embarrassed, Hilton, about the way that you behaved. That was so embarrassing for me to see you like that. But anyway, I must have got over it and gone back, whether it was that year or the next year, I'm not quite sure. But once I got into it, I just absolutely loved it. Embarrassed is it's such a strong word for a parent to use, isn't it? How, how did you react to being told that by your dad? Yeah, I was probably uh, ashamed, I think. And I, I think I wanted, uh, I wanted my dad to love me for who I am or who I was and I felt like well I I perhaps wasn't lovable the way that I was uh, which was not great and maybe in some way shaped my clutching for things as I get older and that thing about acceptance and being valued for and seen for who I am you know, who knows where that stuff comes from? Just feeling bad about every insensitive comment I've ever, I've ever made to my own children, Hilton, when, I, <laughs> when well, I hear that and imagine the little kid hearing that from their dad. I, I think I got through and probably your kids will get through too. <laughs> I'm going to take that as, med as a medical promise. Yes. So, so you pushed yourself back on to the soccer field where maybe it wasn't a natural or automatic fit. What drew you back then? What did you, what were you getting out of being as part of that soccer team of kids that you didn't necessarily quite feel automatically connected to? Well, I think it's exactly as you just said. I felt part of a team. That's, that's what it was. I was never the best player, but I was part of something bigger than me. And that continues to be really a special thing, to be part of something that's bigger. Most of the kids that I played with were the year ahead of me at school. 
So any of the baggage that I felt about my classmates wasn't attached to the guys that I played soccer with. And they really became my closest friends, especially as we got older uh, through high school. Did it expose you to a different part of Sydney as well, playing soccer? I grew up in St Ives, as I said, Kuringai, very uh, leafy, North Shore. What's leafy code for in Sydney? Sydney side has always referred to the North Shore as leafy. What, what's underneath that description? Yeah, quarter acre blocks. There was bush across the road, but I think it's code for uh, middle class, nothing bad ever happens there. <laughs> Thank you. I've always wondered. <laughs> I, I think that's what it's code for. Really good question, Sarah. And then got to travel to other parts of Sydney where life was much tougher. And, you know, us soft Karingai boys had no chance, <laughs> no chance against some of those tougher kids from, from the West who uh, were often uh, European migrants directly and their uh, fathers mostly pushed them really hard. But sometimes their mothers were pretty tough as well. And I remember playing one game and there was a mother with her pram right on the sideline and she pushed the pram onto the field to obstruct one of our players. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it was, it was an eye-opener to, to move outside of this bubble into uh, the real world. In terms of the decision to study medicine, was that your dream or, or your parents? Uh, it definitely wasn't my dream. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Well, I did. I wanted to play soccer for Australia. That, that was my dream. <laughs> but that was never going to happen. And I think my parents felt that I had academic ability but not much direction. So when I was in, like, year 11 or fifth form, it would have been in those days, they sent me to a psychologist who did some testing on me and he said that if I got into medicine, that's what I would enjoy the most and it's also what I would be best at. So he looked at those two parameters. What would Do you the, think your parents paid him to say that? Well, often? I don't know. But suspicious it, about that even <laughs> diagnosis? If, even if they had, the chances <laughs> of me getting into medicine were, were slim because it was all to do with the mark you got in the HSC. And while I was good at maths and science, I needed to get a decent score in English to get in. And that's actually what happened. I fluked a good mark in the HSC exam in English. It was all based on the exam. And I scraped into medicine by nine marks. So it was like this writing an essay on Kenneth Slessor's poem of Five Bells and Hamlet got me into medicine, which is so ironic because I hated all that stuff. How did your parents react to the news that you'd been accepted into medicine? It was probably the happiest moment that I, I can remember of them being together. In those days, the uh, notifications about who got into uni was in the Sydney Morning Herald and, uh, and they... Uh, came running down together into my bedroom with the paper saying that I'd got in. It, it, was a, it was a very happy moment for them and for me too. But it was really, it's nice to have at least that one memory of seeing them really happy together. And given how disrupted, I guess, their education may have been in South Africa and certainly their parents in Europe in the lead up to the war, was, was there a kind of a historic dreaming, do you think, a, a generational dreaming for a child to succeed in that sense? Yeah, definitely. On my father's side, my grandfather, he dreamt of being a doctor. Um, but then the, the First World War came along and my grandfather was conscripted into the army and he got quite sick and then there was the depression. and then that, So he never got his chance to study medicine. And I think he, I, I don't know, but I think he pushed my dad to study medicine and dad did first year in South Africa, but it was never for him. Was your granddad still alive when you were accepted? Yeah, yeah, he was so happy. Yeah, he was so happy. We, they lived in Manly in a little apartment, a little flat on the first floor of a building and we'd walk up the stairs and Kurt and Rosie would wait for us at, at the door 
And uh, my grandfather was always very formal, like he'd have a jacket and a tie on and we'd shake hands as we'd come in. And when I just started studying medicine, he would go hair doctor, you know, <laughs> like it was, it was a big thing for him. Once you began your, your study of medicine, Hilton, how well did the, the course prepare you for dealing with, you know, actual humans, with patients? I imagine there's all the, the chemistry and the biology, the sort of science bit that you need to know to be a good doctor. What about the human relationships? I don't remember there being any instruction around that, uh, which doesn't mean that there wasn't, but I don't remember it. And probably in fairness to the academics, if there was, I probably didn't pay any attention because I, I kind of, especially in the early years, I just thought that was all a nonsense. You just get on with, with life. But I do remember maybe about halfway through medical school when we started to have some uh, contact with patients, going on ward rounds, and it, it was like it's pretty terrible. Like there's the specialist and all the other doctors and then there's the senior nurse and the other nurses and then there's the medical students. And somewhere in the middle, forgotten, lies the patient who is often spoken about, not spoken to. And I remember on one of these occasions in, in the ward round, I, I knew the patient. I'd, I'd had some opportunities to speak with them. And after we'd finished at her bedside, uh, I went up to her and said, don't worry, I'll come and explain that all to you later. And that really surprised me. It's like, where did that compassion come from, you know, within me? It was, it was kind of like a revelation. Oh, I have this compassionate side to me that I didn't really know existed. And um, I suppose because that surprised me, I, I woke up a little bit and paid attention to that and realised that perhaps thinking a little more about the people around me is actually a better way to live my life. You began your practical training at Prince Henry Hospital, the first public hospital in, in New South Wales. That was a real institution by the time you came along. What was it like? Yeah, it was really different to how hospitals are now. It was really spread out. I think they might have been old army barracks. They kind of had that feel, weatherboard, long buildings that were separated by little roads or footpaths. They had a big infectious diseases unit there and there were at Little Bay still some people with leprosy living there. Wow. Uh, who, I, who I got to visit. Uh, there was the jail ward there also because it's near to Long Bay Jail. That was quite an experience for a naive boy from the leafy North Shore. We know what that means now. Uh, well, well, how were the, the patients from the jail treated or housed at the hospital? So in the, the ward where they were, it was, it was a secure ward uh, but the guards were all on the outside and the nurses and the doctors were on the inside. And it was really in the days when tattoos were not so mainstream like they are now. And there was some pretty horrific bodily graffiti on some of the inmates. And it was kind of terrifying. There was one guy who just looked quiet. He was probably, I don't know, in his 50s, just quietly on his own. And uh, he had murdered someone and it was like shocking to be in the presence. For me, it was shocking. They would have also still been veterans from, from the world wars uh, that you were treating. What, what kind of memories do you have of, of war veterans? There were lots of war veterans there and particularly on the vascular surgery ward. In those days, most of vascular surgery was around doing leg amputations for people who had gangrene or poor blood flow to the legs. Often it was in veterans who had been smoking since the age of 16, 17 or 18 and had developed what we now call peripheral vascular disease as a result of the smoking and probably high blood pressure that wasn't so well controlled. And so we used to make this joke, which I don't want to be disrespectful, but if there were as many legs as there were people on the ward, it was a good day. It was a bit shocking. No wonder I drank a bit now that I come <laughs> to think of it. 
Well, and, and you're right up close to life and death as a doctor, of course, especially a doctor in a hospital. What's your memories of the first time you were with a patient when they died? So that would have been when I was working at Hornsby Hospital as an intern. It was uh, one of my first nights doing night duty. So I would have been on the wards on my own. And uh, I got a call from casually to say they were sending up an old bloke, <laughs> a digger. And uh, I went in to see him and I pulled the curtain back. So these were long wards. The patients were just separated by curtains and uh, pulled back the curtain. And this old guy, he had long grey hair, long beard, and he just reached out a hand towards me and just sort of oh, groaned and died like just right there in front of me and there was nothing I could do about it and he just died like that and yeah to to say it was a shocking experience is probably a bit cliched but it it deeply affected me but also I think the thing that affected me most was the lack of support for me at a personal level like for everyone, not just for me, around, well, how do you manage that? And I, I went up to the residence lounge and just sat there for a little bit and someone else came up, told them what had happened. And, you know, probably the response was something like, yeah, well, shit happens, just get on with it. And he was like more experienced than me. So maybe he'd figure that out. And then you just get on and do the next thing. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You took a job in the very pretty town of Bangalore in the hinterland in northern New South Wales. What did it look like when, when you arrived? Uh, well, it was pretty much like a small country town. There were about 800 people lived in Bangalore. The Pacific Highway ran down the main street. The Catholic Church, of course, was on the highest point <laughs> in town and looked down uh, on the, the rest of the town. It was extremely conservative town. When I moved there, the Shooters Party, rightly or wrongly, got the most number of votes at the, the state election. There was quite a Catholic, Protestant or Anglican divide within the town. And here I was, this migrant doctor, or I sounded Aussie, but I didn't feel Aussie living in this very kind of working class small and town. you didn't fit in that Catholic-Protestant divide very neatly either. No, but it was better because, like, one of my patients told me this story once. Um, she might have come from a Catholic family. She said, I don't care who you marry. You can marry a Muslim. You can even marry a Jew. Just don't marry <laughs> the Anglicans or whatever. So it was kind of like the lesser of two evils, depending on which side of the fence you sat. Well, it's such a, a big role to step into a GP in a small community like that. What did the locals make of you at, at first? How hard was it for you to, to gain their trust, I guess, as their doctor? I thought it was hard. Whether, whether I did get their trust or not, I perceived it as difficult. The doctor that I took over from was extremely popular and they had no problems in saying to me, oh, Dr David didn't do, do it like this. That's not how we do it here. And, uh, of course, I'm sort of trying very hard to fit in and hearing this kind of thing was, was a little bit challenging for me. But thankfully, I was quite good with the kids and I, I thought quite deeply about how to be a good doctor for young people. And the kids didn't care if my name was a bit hard to pronounce or if I wasn't Dr David. What they cared about was that I cared about them. And so I got accepted by the kids first 
and their parents saw how well their children were reacting to me and perhaps they looked at, at me in a different light as a result of that. But I, I think I just liked being part of the community exactly as you said. It was... It took a little time moving from Sydney at age 30 to get a, a friendship group established. But I met my wife, Sharon, up there at the Railway Hotel in Byron Bay on a Friday night, as you do. <laughs> I was doing, I saw she was down the other end of the table and I did some impersonations of the Archangel Michael, you know, channeling the Archangel <laughs> to try and get her, to, it seemed to work. And wait, wait, we, I've never heard of this as a, as a pick-up strategy. What do you mean you were channeling the Archangel? Well, there was a guy, there was a guy <laughs> in Byron who used to channel the Archangel Michael <laughs> and I pretended to do what he did to try and get Sharon's attention. And um, we had our 30th wedding anniversary two days ago, so... It worked. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't just, it wasn't just medicine for you, though, Hilton. Soccer, this game you fell in love with as a kid and that you had dreamed of, of playing at the highest level. How did that dream finally come true? How did you get to don the green and gold? Yeah, so um, when we moved to Lennox and our son Liam started playing soccer as a young kid and I'd go to his training and I thought, oh man, this is really fun. I've forgotten how much fun this is. So we got like a father's team together. We called ourselves Dad's Army and, and it was really, really fun. And then that team gradually changed over the years in Lennox and um, we became known as the Rainbow Sharks because we're a mixture of nationalities, abilities, backgrounds, a real mishmash of, of people. Uh, so I continued playing soccer locally and then there was the opportunity to try out for the Australian Doctors Masters soccer team, the Dockeroos. <laughs> the master dockeroos. <laughs> Just one letter away from that other well-known Australian team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I tried out and, and I got into the dockeroos in 2014 and we were to play in Brazil during the World Cup. And so the story is that I got selected to play soccer for Australia at the World Cup, <laughs> which is... Kind of true. I sadly got injured just before the 2014 tournament in Brazil. So having had my dream come true, the dream got shattered. You know, you've got to be careful about dreaming too big. But the following year in Long Beach, California, my lifetime dream to come true of to play for the green and gold of Australia. So the first game was against Lithuania which is like the home of my parents' family. And not only was I excited to be fulfilling my dream of playing for Australia, I thought, oh, man, I'm going to be playing against the descendants of my long-lost cousins. That was it, my imagination. The reality was not quite the same. Why? What, what, what happened? Well, the Lithuanian guys in the, the master Lithuanian team they were like doctors that I'd never met before. They were like, they looked like, I don't want to be judgmental, but they looked, their hands were like the hands of bricklayers and carpenters. <laughs> and they were so dour and serious. And we shook hands and there was no eye contact, no, you know, have a good game. It was just, they, I, I think they were tough men who had lived tough lives. They'd grown up during the Soviet era in Lithuania without, you know, it was not leafy, I imagine. <laughs> Quite the contrast. Yes. <laughs> what about that moment, which I know when, when people fantasise about playing sport for their country, they have that moment where the national anthem goes out over the field. What was that like in this game against Lithuania? So that was almost the thing I was looking forward to the most, you know, rightly and wrongly about the... Uh, the Advanced Australia Fair, I had grown up watching my heroes sing the national anthem and it was going to be my turn to do it. I was so excited. We line up, the first one comes on and it's not Advanced Australia Fair, it must be the Lithuanian one, it sounded like some Eastern European dirge. <laughs> and I look over at the Lithuanians and they're not even singing, they're just standing there. And I thought, oh my goodness, these guys really are serious. Anyway, it finishes and I think, okay, here we go. This is my moment. 
and uh, the first few notes play and I go, oh, that's a very odd introduction to advance. And then the Lithuanian starts singing. It's the Lithuanian anthem. <laughs> what happened to Advance Australia Fair? Exactly. What happened to <laughs> Advance Australia Fair? So we asked the organisers and they had a look and they said, oh, we're very sorry. We played the Austrian national anthem. Oh, oh, no. I had to explain to them where the other Austria, you know, the big island Austria in the middle of the Pacific. So they very kindly played it at the end of the match and we got to sing it then and they got it right with the subsequent game. So I got to do it there and then the following year when we played in Barcelona as well. How did the match against your Lithuanian team go? Who won? Well, how do you imagine it might have gone? The, the, I think for the underdog story to come true. But. Yeah, the leafy... Australians versus the doubt. They <laughs> the Soviet killers. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> they smashed us physically and they won the game. Yeah. Well, part of your excitement in playing this match, as you say, is that these are a Lithuanian team, this country that you know of as your, uh, as the place that your mother's family came from. How did you get to actually visit Lithuania yourself the first time? So in 2018, the uh, real World Cup was held in Russia. Were the Dockeroos making an appearance? Not, not on this occasion, not on this occasion. Uh, but I went with some of my friends from the Rainbow Sharks, the Lennox Head football team. We went over to Kaliningrad to watch uh, the World Cup. And Kaliningrad's a little enclave separate from the main part of Russia and it's very close to Lithuania. So four of us hopped on a bus and went to Vilnius, which is where I thought my family had come from in Lithuania. And uh, we spent a few days walking. It's a beautiful city, by the way. Vilnius is just the most beautiful city. So I'm walking around the Jewish quarter, imagining I'm treading in the footsteps of my ancestors and sort of like, you know, feeling all this stuff from the walls. And, and I found this place called the the Jewish Cultural Centre or Centre for Culture and Information. And I went in there and there's a woman who works there who helps diaspora Jews find their roots. And I, I knew virtually nothing about my mother's family. They changed their names when they went to South Africa and they never spoke of their past. So I had a rough idea of what their original names were and a rough idea of my grandmother's year of birth. That was really the only information that I had. And I spent a few hours with this woman scrolling through databases and didn't come up with anything. And then finally we were looking at the record of the marriages, scrolling really quite fast. And I saw my grandparents' name. I said, stop, stop, stop. That's my grandparents'. That's their information about their wedding. And so at age 60, I found out my grandparents' names, Rebecca Lurie and Nisonis Busmanis, their dates of birth, where they lived, the names of their parents. They didn't actually live in Vilnius. They came from little villages to the northwest of Vilnius. And it was like this complete revelation at age 60 to kind of finally get to know who my grandparents and their families were. And I've got a photograph. I have very few photographs of my grandparents' life in South Africa, but I've got a photograph of my um, grandparents' wedding. And in the wedding are their parents and my grandfather's two sisters and my grandmother's two sisters. So I now know who those people actually are. But really the, the sad thing is that my grandparents in that photo, they were the only two people to survive. In fact, they were the only two people in their entire families on both sides who survived the Second World War. This long career that you had, Hilton, as a country GP and also as an educator of GPs, but then a few years ago you were at the beach at sunrise by yourself. What happened? Sharon and I had decided kind of on the spur of the moment to buy a camper van. We talked about it for a little while and anyway, 
just really encouraged, let's do it. So we bought this camper van and we went away in it once together and then I went away on my own down to Woodyhead in uh, the National Park. And I, I woke up on the second morning and I just went for a walk down Back Beach, probably a kilometre or so. And there was no one there. It was early morning. There were a few kangaroos and Brahmini kites circling overhead. And I just went for a skinny dip right down the end because it was safe. There was, there was no one there. And hopped out and just sat on the rocks to, to dry off. It was February. And I just got really emotional, like really emotional. It's like these, these thoughts and feelings came when was the last time that, well, when was the last time I had a skinny dip? When was the last time I felt so connected with nature? Something's going on that's not quite right. It was, it was very unexpected, but it was very, it was a very real and profound experience. And it was sort of, I guess, on the background, I'd, I'd had this inexplicable neck pain for probably more than a year, that was really disturbing for me on many levels, like just having the the pain day in, day out, particularly at night, really disturbing my sleep. And um, all, no, no one, none of my medical people, including myself, could explain the cause of the pain. So there was kind of like this background that there was something wrong and then here I was having this uh, emotional release while sitting in nature. What happened when you got yourself to work on Monday after that? Yeah, so the next day, getting ready to go off to work and just thinking, oh my God, 24 hours ago, I was feeling pretty different to how I'm feeling now. And I sort of steeled myself for work. And then I don't know, probably second or third patient of the morning, I'm already running late and this person's talking to me about their problems that I cannot solve. And in the middle of that conversation, my face went numb, just out of the blue. Well, perhaps not out of the blue, but anyway, my face went numb and I managed to finish that conversation. And um, I said to my mate in the next room, the doctor in the next room, what's happened? And, and ended up going to emergency and getting some scans. You were sent for an MRI scan, which most people hate the idea of an MRI scan. It's so claustrophobic. There's so much noise. You're worried what they're going to find. What was it like for you? Yeah, so I'm lying on the slab with the machine in my face. Jack, 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 jack. It's so noisy. And I'm lying there and I think, ah, oh, this is the most peaceful I've felt on a Tuesday morning for years. And then my eyes jolt open because I realise if this feels peaceful, I'm in deep trouble because this is anything but peaceful. I think what it was is no one could get to me there. I felt that peace at being safe from being got at. And you're being taken care of. You're not doing the taking care of. Someone's looking after you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, which is really nice. And for me as a slight control freak, and to put my care in the hands of someone else required a little bit of letting go. So what happened when you went along to your own doctor with the results of, of all these tests? You've got this neck pain, your face has gone numb. What did the tests show? So the tests were completely normal, which was reassuring. And uh, my long-term GP, Michael, just such a great guy and... Um, he, he told me the results were normal and then he asked that fatal question. He said, so Hilton, how are things going for you generally? And <laughs> out it all poured. You know, this is on the background of having three days before, two days before, had this kind of like epiphany on the beach. It all poured out about how I was dreading going to work and worrying excessively about my patients and writing long lists and not sleeping well. And it, that was a real shift for me because I loved working as a GP, but that had probably happened over 12 months, maybe longer, 
things had, had got harder as more and more of my patients were dying because they were old, not because I'd made too many mistakes, thankfully. Anyway, Michael listened um, really well and uh, I finished the blah and he just sat back and said, Hilton, you're done. And I said, what do you mean done? And he said, well, you need to have a break from work. It's like, it's too much for you. It's, it's not safe for you to be at work. It's not safe for me and it's probably not safe for my patients either. I need to have a break. How did you feel when he said that? Well, my initial thought was, oh, really? And then it was like, oh, well, we're one doctor short. How about I work till the end of next week and then have some time off? And he said, no, Hilton, you're done. You need to make that call. And I, I kind of, I wanted to be a good patient. You know, I wanted to be a good patient. But I went home and I had a very uncomfortable night trying to decide what to do. Sharon and I talked about it. on the one hand this, on the one hand that. But anyway, the next morning I decided, okay, if that's what, Michael said, I trust him, I need to follow his advice. And so I rang the practice manager and said, I saw my doctor yesterday, he said I need to take a break, I don't know how long it's going to be, I'm not going to be at work today, and I'm not sure when I'll be back. And so after all those physical tests had come back negative, how was it that you came to understand what it was that was actually going on with you? Part of my other work, because I've, I've always had this, these dual careers of clinical work and education, and one of the education jobs that I was doing was around writing what we call health pathways, which are like local clinical guidelines. And I just so happened to be working on the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder pathway at that time. And I read the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. You know, there's a checklist of things and I go, for myself, tick, 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 tick. And I realised what was going on was that I had PTSD. So people think of PTSD as, as a consequence of being in a car accident or in a war zone. How does your experience fit with the, the diagnosis criteria of PTSD? So I think it was multiple traumas and experiencing multiple traumas. So vicariously, by listening to people share their stories over 30 years of hearing some of those stories, but also the loss that came from when uh, people that I cared for, both in the medical sense and the personal sense, died. My parents had died. And then I also got to thinking, well, I wonder what role the journey of my grandparents might have had in this whole process. So there's this thing about uh, intergenerational trauma, that's what it's called. But, you know, was it, is it genetic in me or what did I learn it? So there was this accumulation of various forms of trauma. And for me personally, calling, calling it PTSD, the reason why I needed to stop work, was a diagnosis that resonated for all of those reasons. Some people might say that I had burnout. That didn't resonate for me. And that was actually quite important to make that distinction because I had been doing all the things that they, you know, they being the experts, say that you need to do to prevent burnout. I, I was very good at doing that. Still, this happened. It didn't make sense that I had burnout, but it did make sense to me that I had PTSD so after that advice from your GP that you were done, did you ever go back to work as a GP? Uh, I have not and I will not. <laughs> and, and what happened to those symptoms that you were experiencing physically, the numbness, the pain in your neck? So the numbness pretty much disappeared when I knew that the scan was normal. So that disappeared really quickly. The neck pain took quite a considerable time to, to go so I did change quite a few things in my life. Again, I don't know which one it was. You know, was it exercise more, losing weight, drinking less, changing my diet, having a more regular 
reflective meditation practice not being at work. I don't know, but I don't really mind. I'm just happy that the pain's gone. Although it was the right thing for you to do for your own health, stopping being a, a GP, was there grief in, in stepping away from that job and that role? So much grief and shame also. Like, I felt like a failure and that I'd, I'd failed my patients, mostly. I, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them because it was like I was there one day and not the next. That felt hard at the time, but in retrospect, that was really good because if I'd done how most people retire, which is let the patients know I'm going to be finishing up at the end of the year, you've got like months of saying good, that would have been agony for me, like that would have been terrible. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise just there one day and not the next. It was, it was a bit hard when I'd see people around town because I lived I live in Lennox, I worked in Lennox and I, I would see people. I mean, I used to cross the road to avoid people at the start. which I, Well, because I didn't know what to say and it was partly because I didn't really understand it myself. But as I got more clearer in my own mind that, yeah, my time was up and my time was up and could accept that, you know, the acceptance phase of grief... Um, once I got to that, it was easier to not to cross the road anymore and talk to people. It took me a little while to know how to respond because often people would say to me, you're a good doctor for us or for me, I miss you. You know, they would say that to me and I didn't quite know what to say because it felt wrong or not quite right to say, oh, I miss you too. They just felt, oh, I just didn't feel right. But then I realised I could say, I miss our conversations, which is actually true. I do miss those conversations, but I do not miss working as a GP. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to Michael, my GP, who gave me that, that way out, I guess. Uh, and also, like, I must take some credit for listening to what he said and actually being courageous enough to be a good patient. Absolutely. What role does soccer have in your life now? So, yeah, soccer is still a part of my life. I uh, retired from playing field soccer. I'm an ex-international footballer. <laughs> but no one can take that from no you. No one can take I've still got a drawer full of the shirts and... Uh, I stopped playing with the Rainbow Sharks after we won the grand final in 2018, I think, after being to Kaliningrad. But I play walking soccer now with some of my... Uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as it, walking soccer. Yeah, and it's really fun because some of my uh, teammates would say I, my maximum speed was walking speed anyway. <laughs> so it's like, it's a game made for me. It's, it's really great. It's, it's really nice to still be able to do something that I love. Well, Hilton, it's lovely to think of you out there on the walking soccer field. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Conversations. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Hilton Coppy was my guest on Conversations today, and Hilton's memoir is One Curious Doctor. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.